This is the podcast for RUF at Wake Forest. RUF exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, the lost and the found, the burned and the bored, the cynical and the spiritual. Whoever you are and whatever your story, RUF exists for you. For more information, check out our Instagram at RUF Wake Forest. Now, here's today's teaching. Hey everyone, um, like Susan said, I'm John, and I already introduced myself, but it is good to be with you, and if this is your first time tuning in with us tonight, welcome. Um, we're glad to have you with us, or whoever you're with uh, tonight, and uh, Aria, if we, we want to we wanna connect with you, we want to help you connect with each other and help you connect with God while you're a student at Wake Forest. In this semester, during this time, we are reading the Sermon on the Mount together. And the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' most famous teaching, and it was uh, a sermon that Matthew recorded for us in his gospel. And he gave this sermon just a few years before his death to his disciples and to the surrounding crowds. And the central theme of the Sermon on the Mount is the kingdom of God, or the kingdom in heaven. And this ties, this theme ties everything together. In Matthew 4, right before this, Jesus begins his public ministry and he makes the announcement, repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. And what he's saying is that when he stepped onto the scene, in him, in Jesus, the kingdom of God had arrived. It's here in a real way in Jesus' presence, and it will be fully fulfilled when he returns. And this is the context in which we need to read the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is showing us here what life in the kingdom of God looks like. Not what we have to do to earn our way into the kingdom, but rather what our lives look like, what individual lives and communities look like when they come underneath the gracious rule of God, when they submit to God as their king. And what happens when they do this is they become radically different. And tonight we're going to be talking about how Jesus turns purpose, how he turns our purpose upside down. So purpose, this is something that you wrestle with as college students, particularly as college students, this question, what am I supposed to do with my life? This is a live question for you. Some of you enter college and you know what you want to do with your lives. You know what you want to study. You know what career path you want to go into. But most of your classmates look at you with curiosity and some jealousy. They, they ask, how in the world do these people know what they want to do with their lives? And then they all end up becoming philosophy majors. Just kidding. Um, but this is a real question, right? This is a question that you feel, especially as you are preparing for adulthood in these years. How do I discover my purpose? How do I know what I'm supposed to do with my life? How am I supposed to know what I'm supposed to be for in the world? Alistair McIntyre, who was a prominent uh, Scottish philosopher in the 20th century, he wrote this. He said, before you know what you're supposed to do in the supposed to do, before you can answer the question, what am I supposed to do? You have to first answer the question of what story or stories do I find myself in? Before I can figure out what I'm supposed to do, I have to first answer, what story am I a part of? Give you an illustration for this. Um, Imagine you see a man, I don't know, in a movie or something, walking on a beach holding a cell phone. Now, if he is in a story where he's just been shipwrecked and his, his boat has wrecked upon this island, then he's going to use that phone to call for help. Now, imagine you've got a man walking a beach holding a cell phone, but this man is a busy executive and he is overwhelmed and becoming aware of just how tied he is to his phone and he hates that it's stealing time away from his life and his family. And so what he does with the cell phone is he chucks it into the ocean, right? 
what you do, in order to know what to do, you first have to answer what story or stories do I find myself in. And every culture has a default story. And if unchecked and unquestioned, you will live out of this story. This story will shape your purpose. It will give you direction into how you make sense of your own life in the world. So what is the unchecked, unquestioned default story that we are all living out of in 21st century America? Well, there are a number of stories, there are a number of narratives that are under the water, that are, that are unchecked and unquestioned, but perhaps the one that connects most to the question of purpose is this story or this narrative of expressive individualism. Now, this phrase, expressive individualism, was coined by a Berkeley sociologist named Robert Bella. And when he says individualism, what he means is that Bella believes in our culture, human purpose is deeply connected to the conception of individual freedom, the freedom to do whatever you want, whenever you want, with whomever you want, without someone coercing you or opposing your choices. All right, we see, this, we see this everywhere. Elsa in Frozen sings, no right, no wrong. I'm not going to sing it. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Individualism means that we bristle when we think that anyone else is telling us what to do and our highest value is autonomy. I can do it. And by expressive, Bella is saying that we deeply prize expressing our individuality. If you feel something, do it. If you think something, say it. If you believe something, express it. If you want to be something, go be it. It's about you doing you. And social media, the, the way that we use it, actually requires a culture of expressive individualism to work as much as it creates this culture. Right? We post our pictures on Instagram. You post yourselves on Snapchat. We post quotes on Twitter. Your parents post their lives on Facebook. Social media is the self-expression storefront. Love me, follow me, embrace me, accept me. This is one of the unchecked, unquestioned narratives that our culture tells around purpose. And if this is the story that you're a part of, then your purpose will be to figure out who you are and then express yourself. And so we have become a nation of atomized individuals with unchecked, un, unchecked impulses that we must express ourselves at all costs. And now as a nation, we are close to being at war with one another. In the past few weeks, I have read multiple long-form articles written by thoughtful, careful commentators who are questioning whether or not our country is breaking apart. As our cities burn, as many of our families stop talking to each other, as people cancel each other, as our social fabric tears apart, it has become clear, and for some of us, maybe for the first time, it's become clear that there's something very wrong. And in our passage tonight, Jesus begins with this assumption. He speaks to his disciples and to you and to me with the undergirding assumption that there's something very wrong with us and very wrong with the world that we live in. He begins with the assumption that the world is dark and decaying. Jesus says to his disciples, you are salt and you are light. Implicit in that is that the world is decaying and it needs salt and the world is dark and it needs light. And you see this all around you physically. You work hard to keep your bodies from falling apart. There's a reason why everyone and their mom owns a Peloton now. Our bodies are decaying and in death they literally fall apart. Relationally, you have to work hard to keep your relationships intact. All of us have broken, broken relationships with family and with friends and with siblings. Psychologically, 
staying happy is really hard. You have to work at it. Environmentally, listen to your neighbors. They are scared that the world isn't going to last. And socially and politically, our cities are burning. The chasm between the left and the right politically continues to grow wider and wider. If the world is all there is, there is no hope. Everyone agrees with this, but we don't face up to it. The death rate is and will always be one per person. The world is dark and decaying, and it has no ability to fix itself. And as we look at this passage tonight, we're going to see that Jesus has hope for us, and he has purpose for us. He has purpose for his people that is an upside-down purpose. Instead of existing, instead of life existing for your expressive individualism, God has great purpose for you. He sends you into the darkness and the decay as salt and light. Jesus is not giving you extra stuff to do but it's saying that this is who you are as you are sent into your real life. You are salt and you are light. So this is my two points for tonight, sent as salt and sent as light. So first, sent as salt. What is salt? Salt is a preservative and it's a seasoning. So when I say it's a preservative, salt um, is used to preserve meat. You take meat, they did this in the ancient world, they still do it when they cure meats, and you rub salt into the meat and it extracts moisture so that no bacteria or mold can grow. This is what cured meats are. Prosciutto and pepperoni and salami are made this way. But without salt, meat decays and it rots. So if you're a Christian, Jesus has sent you into the world as salt to preserve it from decay. And salt is also seasoning. When you salt food, the goal isn't to make food salty. It's to draw out the flavor that's already present in the food. Cooks know this. The salt enhances the flavor that's already there. The first time I really ever understood this was I, I was making a stew or a chili with a youth group um, right after college, and we made this, this chili, this big pot of chili, put all the meat and the vegetables in, and we tasted it, and it was completely bland. We couldn't figure out why we couldn't taste in the fla- any of the flavor. And then one guy said, well, we forgot to add salt. And then as he added the salt, we begin to taste the rich flavors that were already present in the chili. This is what salt does. It enhances flavor. It pulls out the flavor and the beauty that is already there. So how does it do this? Well, salt has two properties that are important to this. It's different, and it doesn't exist for itself. So first, salt is different. Salt is only effective because it's different from the food that it's seasoning. And the same is true for us as Christians. You are sent into the world to preserve preserve the world from moral decay and to enhance the flavor of the world, to draw what is good and true and beautiful out and to make it more lovely. And your power to do this lies in the fact that you are different from the world. Salt doesn't exist for itself. This is Jesus' main meaning here. As salt exists for food, so Christians exist for the world. Salt's main mission is penetrating food. And Christians' main mission is penetrating the earth. Just as salt, apart from food, is worthless, so Christians not living for people outside of themselves are worthless. This is what Jesus is saying. And he's saying that the posture of the church is to be always like salt's posture towards food. But the church doesn't always take this posture. Um, Dr. Greg Thompson gives a couple of frameworks or to help understand how the church thinks about its relationship to the world. And he says that the three dominant ways that the church does this are domination, fortification, and assimilation. 
So domination, this posture is saying that the fundamental posture of the church is to triumph over our neighbors, over our cultural enemies. And in this view, the basic task of the church is to extend its own values into the world. And while the the threat to the church is those whose values are different from its own. Now, salt that dominates food ruins food. Nobody wants oversalted food. And this is not Jesus' intention for the church. And your neighbors know this. Many of them have experienced Christians and churches who try to dominate them, and it tastes like a mouthful of salt. So question for you, do you religiously dominate your friends? So second category is fortification. And this posture suggests that the fundamental calling of the church is to guard the integrity of the divinely wrought life of the church against the opponents in the world to fortify itself against the world, to build a buttress, a castle against the world. And the basic threat to the church, this idea says, is that the larger culture is destructive. Well, salt that fortifies itself against food is worthless. I mean, imagine sitting down to a a grand dinner and being served food and asking for salt and the host saying to you, no, 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 we don't want your food to corrupt the salt. I mean, it's absurd. Salt that fortifies itself against food is worthless, and your neighbors know this. Many of them have experienced Christians and churches who fortify themselves against them. So the question, do you do this? Do you fortify yourself against your neighbors? And the third is the posture of assimilation. And this suggests that the fundamental calling of the church is to become like our neighbors in service of the larger world. And the basic threat to the church is being seen as different in what we believe and how we behave in receiving the scorn of our neighbors. And then the task of the church, the basic task of the church, is to partner with our neighbors in the interest of social renewal. And salt that assimilates to food is worthless. If salt loses its saltiness, it's no longer good for anything. You might, you're just rubbing dirt into your steak. You might as well throw it out. This is what Jesus says here. He says, salt that loses its saltiness is worthless because it's no longer salt. Jesus sends his church. He sends you together. He sends us into the world to be salt, not to dominate, not to fortify ourselves, not to assimilate, but to enter in, to be a faithful presence, to preserve and enhance the world. Here's what he's saying. Jesus is saying that he has blessed you, right? This is coming right after the Beatitudes where he has pronounced his blessings on his disciples. He has blessed you to be a blessing to the world. This is the pattern that we see in Scripture, beginning in Genesis 12, when God calls Abraham and he blesses him and tells him, I am blessing you so that you would be a blessing to the world. This is what he's doing here. Jesus is blessing his disciples, blessing the church to be a blessing to the world. And it's only as you live this life of blessing, poor in spirit, sad, meek, thirsting and hungering for righteousness. It's only in this posture, as we receive blessings from Jesus, that you will be salt to preserve and enhance the world around you. So what does this look like? What does it look like for us to be sent as salt? Well, a Christian doesn't look at a situation and say, what can I get out of this? How do I make this about me? Right? That's the story of expressive individualism. But rather, a Christian says, how can I bring the best out of this group or this organization or these people? And the problem with how we see our careers today is that people use them for their own ambition. We ask the question, how can I enhance myself? How can, I, how can this work be part of my self-expression? But the Christian goes into their workplace and says, how can I make this the best possible place? How can I be about goodness and beauty and truth here 
in this place with these people. I want us to think about this in our life together as RUF at Wake. We don't exist for ourselves. God has blessed us and sent us into Wake Forest to be a blessing, not to dominate the university with our ideas or our presence, not to fortify ourselves against her and hide away, not to become like her in all that she does, but to arrest the decay we see around us and to enhance the beauty that is already here. Salt only preserves and enhances the meat that it penetrates. So what corner of Wake Forest is God calling you into? For you freshmen, this means that to be a Christian at Wake Forest is to get involved in the university, to join Greek life, to join clubs, to join student government, to be an RA, to get involved in your major, to get on the inside of organizations so that you can be present as salt. And for your upperclassmen, where are you already? Where has God placed you on campus? Where do you find yourself? Not where do you want to be, but where are you right now? Which classes, which dorm or apartment, which friendships, which organizations are you already in? Where is the present darkness and decay where he has placed you so that you can preserve and enhance right where you are? And if you're listening to this and you realize that you're only surrounded by other Christians, you need to ask him this in prayer. Where is he calling you to go? Where is he calling you to be salt and light? You are sent as salt to preserve and enhance. And second, Jesus says that he sends you out as light. And he says three things about light. He says, you're the light on, you are the light of the world, city on a hill, and you are a lamp on a lampstand. So first, the light of the world. Well, what does light do? When my kids get dressed in the dark, sometimes they come downstairs with the lights on and they realize that they've picked out two different colored socks, right? Light reveals what is hidden in darkness. It's only in the light that they see that those socks don't match. Light exposes things for what they are. So how are we sent as light? If you are light, then your life should be so beautiful that it shows other things for what they really are. If you're a Christian, then your presence will reveal dishonesty in the classroom, gossip in your friend group, it will reveal racism in your dorm, it will reveal promiscuity amongst your friends. How? It's because in the light, light makes gossip look like gossip and dishonesty look like dishonesty and racism look like racism. How is this possible? By living according to the truth. Jesus um, tells us that God has given us the truth in when the Old Testament is recorded as the Ten Commandments and as Jesus summarizes this, he says that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind and to love our neighbor as ourself. Now, if you go in this posture, you might be thinking, John, won't this lead me to not being liked? Let's go back to verse 12, what we read last week, where Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. The kingdom of heaven belongs to you. Being a Christian in the world will lead you to being persecuted for Jesus' sake. And you might respond, sure, John, but won't that mean that Christians will all be boring, self-righteous people on campus? Not at all. As you follow Jesus, as you are sent by God into the world, the world will see the truth. We'll see the truth of Jesus' kingship and the way that y'all collectively, as you together, the way that you handle pressure and you treat criticism and you care for people beneath you, the way that you play together and have fun together, the way that you forgive those who have screwed up, the way that you apologize when you are in the wrong, just by showing up, you will reveal dishonesty, racism, sin, and brokenness. So a question for you to consider. Is your life so remarkable that it shows the contrast between the beauty of Christ and what's around you? 
or do you blend in? And there's nothing remarkable about your life and nothing stands out. Second, Jesus says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. And city here could mean society, and he's talking about the church, that the church is an alternative society. Collectively, Jesus is saying is that the church is, is the light of the world. This means that the way that we interact with one another will show the world who God is. Tim Keller says that this means that in the church, the way that the races get along, the way that the classes get along, the way that we care for one another is how the world sees who Jesus Christ is. This means that the way that we treat one another, not just when we're gathered, but at parties and in class, and when we see and interact with one another around campus, the way that you play intramurals, the way that you pick roommates, the way that you interact with those who serve you food and those who take out your trash, all of it is going to be the way that the campus sees who Jesus Christ is. Y'all, RUF is not a club. It is supposed to be a colony or a city or a new humanity a place where people can see what race relations and academic integrity and friendship and ambition and purpose can look like under the lordship of Christ. This means that in RUF, you are not allowed to only talk to the types of people that you're most comfortable with. And this is true for the church. Everything I'm saying that's true for RUF is is true for the church. I've got this group of pastors that I meet with every year, and we are a very diverse group of people geographically, not with our jobs, we're all pastors, but geographically, racially, economically, politically, it's a diverse group. And whenever we are together, we rejoice together, saying, if it weren't for Christ, there is no way that I would love you like I do. And I love you. If you have no one that you can talk to that way, it might be because you're not being salt and you're not being light. So Jesus says, you're the light of the world. You're a city on a hill. And third, you're a lamp on a lampstand. He says that no one, after lighting a lamp, covers it up, but rather he puts it on a table so that the light shines into the whole room. He's saying the same is true for the church. This is good news. He's saying that you are not the source of the light. You're a lamp, and Jesus has lit you. He is the light of the world. You are just a lamp that he has lit, like a handle held up to the blazing flame of a fire to receive its light. Jesus is saying that God is not going to light us Tell us that we're the most important people in the world and then stick us under a bucket. One of the worries that I often hear from students is that you are worried about where to go and what to do in order to be most useful to God. And Jesus wants to remove this anxiety from you and from us that somehow our missionary success is up to us and it's up to our abilities and it's up to our skills. Jesus is saying that he is the one who has lit you. He's the one who wants the light to reach the whole house. The one who lights us up is the one who has put us on the table. And this should cause us to exhale and to relax because we are just candles lit by the true flame. In John 1 and John 8, Jesus says that he is the true light of the world. What does this mean? It means that he is the truth because truth illuminates. It makes things clear and visible. Jesus is gloriously good. He cannot lie. He cannot cheat. He is supremely beautiful in his glory and his loveliness. And he guides us to reality. When you see a light, it shows you everything else. Right? It's not like if you lose your keys, you don't, um, you don't find the light by turning on your... That doesn't make sense. 
The light shows us that illustration didn't work. The light shows us everything that's in the darkness. We need light to see. When Jesus says that I am the light of the world, he is saying, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. He is saying that the other religions don't have as much truth in them as he has in himself. Jesus is saying, I'm not just a prophet. I'm not just pointing to the true light. I am the true light of the world. And Jesus Christ is saying that he has lit the church. This is what he's saying in verse 15. He has given his light to the church. He has lit the church. So we are sent into the world bearing the light of Christ. It's only as we are lit by him that we expose the world for what it is. So a question for you is, are you lit? Are you, have you been lit up by Jesus Christ? If you have, then the only way that you are going to be salt and light to our decaying and dark world is by staying close to Jesus, the true light. Do you see this? Being salt and light isn't something that you do. It's who you are when you're close to Jesus. And if you get far from him, if you avoid him and ignore him, if you don't spend time from him, receiving from him in prayer and reading his word, getting relit and reignited by him, then you won't be light and you won't be salt. So have you been ignited by Jesus? Have you been lit up by him? And if the answer to this question is I don't know or no, first off, we're so glad that you're here. But second, ask you this question. Do you want to live life in the adventure of bringing salt and light into a dark and decaying world? Do you want to know a true light and a true salt that will arrest the decay in your own life and flood the darkness of your heart and mind with true light? The way that Jesus makes us salt and light is the way of blessing. It's the blessed life. When we come to him with open hands and we mourn our sin and we receive his grace by faith and we hunger and thirst after his righteousness, this is how Jesus makes us salt and light. So give yourself to him, to Jesus Christ, and you will be ignited with a true light that will never go dark. And your life will be restored to its true purpose. Jesus doesn't call us to do anything that he won't empower us by his Holy Spirit to do. And Jesus does not call you to do anything that he himself hasn't done first. Jesus Christ is the true salt of the earth who was thrown out. Jesus was thrown out of the city and onto a cross and trampled under the feet of those who killed him for you. And Jesus is the true light of the world. And he was extinguished on the cross. He was a smoldering wick who was snuffed out. When Jesus died, pervasive darkness covered the earth for three hours. The darkness of our sin and God's wrath on that sin met in Jesus and he was extinguished and the world went dark. The light of the world went out so that in his resurrection, he might be lifted up in his church so that whoever comes to him, whoever comes to him might receive his light and his truth. Jesus says that the purpose the purpose of us being salt, the purpose of us being light is so that the world would give God glory for the good works that we do. And the word for good here means beautiful. What Jesus is saying is when he sees the beautiful works that we do, people, when people see the beautiful works that we do, they will give God glory in heaven. <clears throat> Excuse me. He's saying that the good works that the church do are more about showing off the beauty of God and less about being a lampstand than they are about being the source of light. 
The goal is that people would be impressed by the Father who makes disciples this way, rather than be impressed with the disciples who behave a certain way so that people will notice. Notice that Jesus doesn't say that they'll see us and glorify God. They'll see our beautiful works and glorify God. Not the lampstand, but the light. So what do these beautiful works look like? I'm going to close with this. Um, I want to tell you about a movie called Lars and the Real Girl. It's about 10 years old, and it's an amazing movie. If you haven't seen it and you're looking for a movie rack, rent it with your friends this weekend. It stars Ryan Gosling. It's a plus. And this film takes place in a small Wisconsin town, and it follows this kind-hearted but mentally ill young man named Lars. And one day, Lars comes to his brother and sister-in-law, he tells him that he has a visitor whom he met via the internet, and she is a wheelchair-bound missionary of Brazilian and Danish descent named Bianca. And then when they're introduced to Bianca, they realize and discover that Bianca is a lifelike doll that Lars has purchased through an adult website. And Lars introduces her as a real person and as his girlfriend. And throughout this movie, you see this small town and this church that they attend in this town start to care for Lars by, treat, by treating Bianca as a real girl. And as they love him and as they love her and enter into his life, he who was isolated and withdrawn, as they enter into his life, he is finally able to begin to heal. And then one day, Bianca dies. And the town gives Bianca this full-fledged real funeral. Now, I watched the movie with Mary Clark and my mom um, this spring, and as we watched it, we found ourselves in tears because of the humble love and care of this small town and this small church as they loved Lars into his humanity. And this is what I want to focus your attention on. There's this scene in the movie where after Bianca is in the hospital and she's dying, the women of the church come over to the house, and they bring casseroles, and then they sit with the family as they grieve. And Lars' sister-in-law doesn't know what to do, and she's active, and she's up and about, and the ladies of the church say to her, no, sit, dear, have something to eat. We came over here to sit. They came over to sit. In the midst of the craziness of this family, of the messiness of real life, in the midst of mental illness and grief and confusion and uncertainty, these normal, mundane women from the church came over to sit. Friends, I don't need to tell you this, but we live in a culture that is caught up in the epic, caught up in the impressive. And Jesus is saying that the thing that is going to show the world who your Father in heaven is, isn't you being impressive. It's not you doing great things. It's not you being epic or being the best in the world. It's not your resume. It's not your excellence of your achievements. But it's as you enter the mundane lives of your neighbors as salt and light, because you have a Father in heaven who has ignited you and your brothers and sisters with his love and truth. And it's then and there that he will bring glory to himself through your beautiful works. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the clarity with which you speak to us, that you give us these images, salt and light, for us to make sense of our purpose in the world. Lord, I thank you for these friends that are watching along with us. And Lord, I pray that you would help us. Help us to make sense of this call from you. And Lord, most of all, we pray that you would help us. I pray that you would help us to see you as the true light and the true salt, the one who was given for us to light the world. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. What we're going to do now is um, I am going to give us a benediction to say um, God's word over us to send us out. 
And then we are going uh, to hear the doxology and invite you to sing along and then um, invite you to take some time together to have a conversation about large group, whether you're gathered with people together or if you want to be in other in groups with other people, um, there's going to be a link put into the chat that will take you to a, uh, another um, another Zoom meeting and uh, you can be put in small groups there. And even if you're with a small group of people and you want to be connected to somebody who might be in isolation or doesn't know anyone in RUF, it's a great way to connect with folks and just have a couple minutes to discuss what you've heard and, and see each other face to face. Um, so I think, Matt, are you putting the questions in the, so the questions are in the chat. Take a screenshot of that. Um, and uh, I'm going to send you out, send you out uh, with this good word that you have a king in heaven who loves you and he sends you out under the banner of his love. May the love of God the Father and the grace of his Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit go with you and be with you until that great day. Amen. Have a great week.